there. As we preach through the book of Revelation, we keep coming back and back again to a question of how we're to interpret this book. And um, if you're like, like myself and like most of us here, then uh, probably the majority of times, if you've ever been taught through Revelation before, you've been taught to interpret in terms of the most common view of our day, which is a dispensational view. Um, and, and what that view says is that the, the book of Revelation is to be read in terms of almost like a, a histor- historical account or a, a newspaper reporting of what's going on. So you, have, you start in chapter 1 and you read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and each subsequent section reveals uh, in chronological order the events that are to happen in the end times, how these things will play out. As we've talked about, this view has some problems. Uh, one of the problems Stephen brought up last week was in, at the beginning of uh, chapter 12, where you get this picture of Christ being born and the dragon seeking to devour him. Uh, and that doesn't really fit. It's in the middle of the book, and yet it speaks of the birth of Christ. We come today to another passage that's going to force us to question this popular, uh, this popular way of reading Revelation. Um, And as we've read through chapter 6, John's been relating the breaking of seven seals accompanied by visions. And today we read of the breaking of the sixth of these seals. But as we'll see, the vision Christ reveals at the breaking of the sixth seal is of the last day and the final judgment. Now now pay attention, we're at chapter 6, and there's 22 chapters. So you can see how that that might pose a problem. If you see the book of Revelation being this chronological outline of exactly what's going to happen. And here in chapter 6, we see the end. You're reading along. If you have this dispensational view, you're reading, reading, this happens, this happens, this happens, the end. What? Chapter 6, John, you got 22 chapters. Let's let's, uh, pace yourself a little bit. So it doesn't make any sense. It's going to make it hard. And sometimes people even reinterpret or not not go with the, the, the obvious reading of the text so that they can fit it into their paradigm. So maybe it's not the last day. Maybe it's just a really bad day, but, may, but not the last day. Yet this is describing the last day, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the context. We're going to look at what the seal describes and see that this is the last judgment day. Now, as we walk through Revelations, we're trying to reform our way of reading it. And we've been learning a different paradigm. It's involved learning a lot of new language, some new terms. One of those terms is recapitulation, this idea of retelling, that the the book of Revelation retells the same story over and over. And another term that I don't know if you remember, last week Stephen introduced it, this, this idea of progressive parallelism. And what that means is that Revelation is telling the same story over and over, but it's, each time it tells it is from a different perspective. But it's always moving, progressing. In each retelling, you're, it, Christ advances the, retel, the story so that he still builds to this final climax at the end. How does that work out? What's something we can think of to help us picture this? I want you to think in terms of a great symphony, or maybe for, for some of us who are a little less classically inclined, maybe the, uh, the score of an epic movie. How about that? In a symphony, you have various themes that are developed. You're introduced early on as pieces, but then they are 
you're returned to throughout the, the symphony, and the, they recur, and each one builds upon another, and they interact until you get this developing and maturing theme throughout the symphony as all these themes come together. In a movie score, you see very much the same thing. You'll have these, these separate themes that maybe are associated with our favorite bad guy, favorite good guy, and they recur throughout the movie too. So you'll see them, and as the movie progresses, and you have each of your characters shows up multiple times, they interact with one another, they change throughout the movie, these themes will progress and change as well. Revelation, like a symphony, has recurrent themes that we explore, or that John explores here, um, and they're, they're set aside, and they're returned to, and each time the themes are looked at from a different perspective, but not forgetting what happened before. So what are some of the themes that we've seen in Revelation? There's a theme of God's sovereignty. There's a theme of Christ's death and resurrection. There's themes of tribulation, martyrdom, endurance. There's a recurrent theme of the kingdom of Christ. And there is the recurrent theme of the day of judgment. In a musical score, score you might have this theme composed of a cacophony of clashing cymbals, bass, or drums. And we'll see this theme multiple times throughout Revelation. We see it here in chapter 6. We'll see it later, described in chapter 16 with the seventh bowl of God's wrath, and again in chapter 19 and chapter 20. So what we read today is one of a number of glimpses that Christ gives us of the judgment and the wrath that's going to be poured out on that day. And we're not intended to read this as a blow-by-blow chronological account. How then are we to read it? It's not that there's no order to what is written in Revelation. There is an order, but it's not a chronological order. It's a logical order. So not chronological, but logical. What does that mean? It means that this is written in a way to teach us. It's written for a specific purpose. As with any good teacher, Christ has a logical flow to his teaching, and we need to understand what it is that he is teaching us. We've got to perform you know, our, our biblical exegesis. We have to look at the context We have to understand the relation of the different ideas that are displayed. We have to look at the grammatical context, the prophetic imagery, all of these things so that we can look and understand the purpose that Christ has has written what it is that we're reading today. And what we find in our text today is a proclamation of the coming day of God's judgment on all those who dwell on earth. And we, each one of us, come face to face with that despairing question at the end, on that day, who can stand? As we seek to lay out the teaching of the sixth seal, we're going to demonstrate a few things. We're going to demonstrate first that this is final judgment. We'll look at that. Then we're going to look at what the sixth seal answers. It answers a question. We're going to look at the question and the answer. We're going to turn and look at what the seal tells us about the judge on that day. We'll look at what the seal tells us about those who are judged. And then, finally, we'll come face to face with the question raised by the sixth seal, that question we all must face on that day, who can stand? So let's begin by reading our text. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? I don't think any of us can dispute the drama and the severity of what's described, what John depicts here. But what does it mean? Is this some sort of natural cataclysm, as I've heard some people say? A time of tribulation on the earth that's severe but not final. Or is the day depicted there the one final day when we will see the full wrath of God poured out in ultimate judgment on the earth? As we seek to answer that question, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look to the Old Testament to the prophetic imagery that John, we've already seen using over and over again throughout Revelation, the prophetic imagery that's used in the Old Testament. We're going to turn to the New Testament and to the Gospels. The, I don't know if you remember the term Stephen told us last time, the uh, synoptic apocalyptic discourses, those teachings of Jesus about the end times. So we'll look there. And then we're going to look uh, finally to the book of Revelation itself, to this passage and other passages that share the same recurrent theme. So let's look at the Old Testament first. The terminology used to describe the sixth seal is common imagery that's found throughout the Old Testament. And it's used to describe God's judgment, judgment on nations. A couple of examples. Isaiah prophesying the judgment of Edom says in Isaiah 34 verse 4, All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. So here we see the same very image. The sky is rolling up like a scroll. The stars falling to the earth. We have fig leaves instead of fig fruit, but still the same effect is produced. And the destruction of creation ties directly to the judgment and destruction that Edom is going to experience. And there's a similar passage, in another similar passage. Isaiah prophesies the destruction of Babylon. This is a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 13. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land of desolation to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Again, you have catastrophe. Catastrophe in the heavens signals catastrophe for the image of enemies of God. And there's, there's many, a myriad of passages like this. Uh, one of the ones, the, the last one we're going to turn to right now, or look at right now, is in Joel. Um, and uh, it speaks of the coming judgment on unbelieving Israel and all the nations that are going to be judged. Joel 2, verse 30 reads, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we see that throughout the Old Testament, the, the language is consistent. This is the language, the language we see in the sixth seal is the language of judgment. But is it final judgment on all the earth, like the comparison to Joel would seem to, seem to, to suggest? Or is this more limited judgment on individual nations, like with Edom or with Babylon? Let's turn to the Gospels, to the apocalyptic discourses we talked about, and get a little more insight. If you could turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, um, and we're going to read the description that Christ gives of that coming day when he will come to judge the world. 
And we're going to read in uh, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We again see the same language, the sun and moon darkened, the stars are fallen. Even the earthquake finds its parallel in the quaking of the heavens. And in Matthew, as well as the other passages in the Synoptic Gospels, these parallel passages, he speaks of that day, the day of his return, the day of his judgment on the nations. And we've looked at Old Testament parallels, we've looked at the Gospels, now let's turn to the evidence of the book of Revelation itself. There's a commonality between the language of the sixth seal and those other final judgment scenes depicted in chapter 16, chapter 20 of the two we're going to look at. Chapter 16 depicts the seventh bowl of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And this results in a great earthquake, much like the earthquake of the sixth seal. And in addition, we're told that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Nearly identical words with chapter 6 in the sixth seal. And we turn to chapter 20, and we see further confirmation. In verse 11, it reads, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. In the opening of the sixth seal, we get a vision. And we see the appearance of him who sits on the throne, and it is at his appearing that the sky is rolled up like a scroll. The events of chapter 6, chapter 16, chapter 20 sound so similar because they are the same event. They each describe the coming, second coming of Christ when he will judge the earth once and for all. John tells the same event from different perspectives and for different purposes, but every time his subject is the same, the day of the Lord. So we know the identity of that day. It's the day of the Lord, the day of final judgment. But why is it here? What's the purpose in what we're reading today? Why doesn't Christ just wait till the end of the book and give it to us all at once? Here's the day. Here's what's going to happen. Bam! No, there's a purpose behind what he's teaching. He is our chief pastor, if you will, and he is teaching us here, his people, those things that he and his sovereign wisdom knows we need to hear. And this goes back to the idea that this book has a logical order. An, an argument to be made, and not an argument in the sense of two people argument, arguing, but in the sense of ordered teaching, instruction. The teacher brings his student with him, and Christ is here bringing us with him. So what is he teaching us? Let's turn and look at the context and understand the logical flow of our passage today, back in Revelation chapter 6. When we do, we'll see that the vision of the judgment that Christ gives is framed by two questions. The vision answers one question and imposes another. And let's look at these two questions. In order to do this, we need to remember what we've already covered in the first, or already seen in the first five seals. The first four seals describe a time of gospel witness in, in the midst of great tribulation. And with the opening of the fifth seal, or let's, let's look at that again. In, in, um, in, in this time of tribulation, you know, one of the, the, the big differences between these first four seals and the sixth seal is that in these first four seals, there's always a limit 
to what is, what, is, what is given, the authority that is given. So when death and Hades are given authority to kill, it's not over the whole earth. It's over a fourth of the earth with famine, with sword, with pestilence, with wild beasts. Then the fifth seal turns to the vision of heaven and the souls of the martyrs beneath the altar, those who were slain for the word of God and their testimony during the time of tribulation, and they cry out. They're not silent, but they cry out to God. And that is the first question that frames our text. And what is their cry? We'll look back up in verse 10. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the question, the question we wrestled with last week. And the question that really opens our passage today. The martyrs acknowledge God's holiness and his sovereignty, and they cry out to him to finally bring judgment and justice on a world that has rejected God, and they've rejected God's people and rejected God's Son. And they're given an immediate answer, but it is only a partial answer. Remember the answer that they got. God said, wait, wait a little while. More of your brothers are going to die. My plan is not finished. The witness of my people is not complete. Wait a little while, he says. But God's answer doesn't end there. For with the opening of the next seal, the sixth seal, Christ reveals the very thing that the martyrs asked for. He brings in a resounding answer to their question and cry. He will bring judgment on all those who dwell on the earth. The great day of his wrath is set. Dennis Johnson describes this well, the relationship between the fifth seal and the sixth seal. He says, seal five explained the restraint of the judgments of seals one through four. Remember that restraint we talked about, how they were not complete. Showing that the end will not come until all the martyrs have died. Now seal six provides a balancing assurance that the end will certainly, will come certainly and suddenly. So the importance of this assurance is seen in the very names by which the martyrs address their God. Do you remember what those were? They call him, O Sovereign Lord, Holy and True. If the answer that we heard last week, the first answer demonstrates his sovereignty, that he has a plan for the full extent of the suffering and death of his people, even so much so that the number of the martyrs is fixed, the second answer, the answer given by the sixth seal today, demonstrates his holiness that he will not let evil go unpunished forever. And there will be a day of reckoning. Church, we need to be reminded of God's holiness. Are you aware of how often we fail to hold our Lord Christ as holy? Brothers and sisters, how often have you been wronged by another and find yourself in your heart, you've got vengeance built up, you, 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 with biting words, angry deeds, you fight back, you rear up, and you strike back at your persecutor. How dare you treat me that way? You will pay. Have you seen this in your heart? How many of us have struck out against our enemies or our bosses or our coworkers or our neighbors next door our husbands and wives, brothers and sisters? Do you not see that such vengeful rage in your heart is devastating testimony that you do not know the holiness of God? For if we understood God's holiness, 
then that would undermine any attempt for us to seek our own vengeance. God's holiness must be upheld. He is the one that must be avenged. Scripture says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So in the face of wrong, we're commanded to enact, we're not commanded not to enact our own brand of justice, but as in 1 Peter, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And to those facing persecution, Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How does honoring Christ the Lord as holy get rid of our attempts for vengeance? Because when I am wronged, it's not I that need to be avenged. After all, do I really deserve better treatment than I've received? No. It is God who needs to be avenged. When I am wronged, or when I wrong, it's God himself that the sin has been committed against. That's why David says when he committed that horrible sin of adultery and murder against Uriah, he says to God, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Our sin is always directed against God himself. Romans twelve nineteen sums this up where Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do we know God's holiness? When we see God's holiness like we do in our text today, our desire for vengeance should crumble. In fact, forget what imagined offense another may have against me. It's now my own offenses against a holy God that overwhelm me. Christ opens the sixth seal and gives a resounding answer to the question, how long before you will judge? He reminds his people of his holiness. He will bring that final day of judgment and wrath Vengeance will be his, but he faces us in the face of that day of wrath, in the light of our sin against him, with that question, who can stand? Before we get to the answer to that question, there's two more things we need to understand about the teaching of the sixth seal. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the identity of the judge, and then we're going to look at, turn our attention to the identity of those who are judged, those who incur judgment. So first, I want to look at what this passage teaches about the day, the judge on that day. <clears throat> now, like some of the later descriptions of that last day, the opening of the sixth seal does not give a direct description of the judge. What we do see are the effects of his judgment, and we do get a view of him, but it's only from the despairing lips of those who are judged, who cry out. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. So there is our judge. He is him who is seated on the throne in the Lamb. And there's something significant in the way this is paired here. We can see this by looking at what the text does not say. The condemned do not say, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Now, Jesus tried everything he could to protect us from this uncaring, vengeful God, but apparently it just wasn't enough. As if, as if Jesus is some nice New Testament guy, and the Old Testament guy is an angry God and tyrant who we need to be protected from. And that's the way many people nowadays seem to think. But no, that is not what it says. 
It says, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, sent to die for sinners, is the same one who will bring judgment and vengeance on the earth. Jesus speaks of his authority to judge in John 5, 25, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has, given, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and cry out, or come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus, as the Son of Man from Daniel 7, has authority to judge. This authority is given him by his Father. There's no conflict there. There's no disunity between Father and Son. We see here an outworking of the Trinity. That God the Father and God the Son are both God, persons in the same Godhead. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three divine persons, all sharing equally and fully in the being of God, and they are unified in all things. We've seen the Trinity unified in creation, in the incarnation, in Christ's death and resurrection, in unity. They enact the salvation of the elect. And now here we see Father and Son, members of the triune Godhood, acting in unity in judgment. Again, this grates against the popular mind. As a culture, we shun the idea of judgment of any kind. We want a God of undifferentiated love. And our Jesus, in that sense, is worse than Santa Claus because at least he keeps a naughty list. (laughs) The Jesus of our culture loves us for who we are, and he only wants to make us happy. That's why we have leaders who gather large gatherings and teach that all that God wants to do is make us happy and healthy. We have leaders who write books condemning the idea of hell or the idea of God's judgment. And we are not immune to this, church. We may give lip service to the presence of hell or the right of God to judge, but do we really hold a view of Christ the Lamb that is terrible enough to shake the heavens and to make a world cry out in fear? Is that our Christ? Does your view of Christ mesh with what we're seeing here? And this Christ is not unknown to Revelation. Remember chapter 1 opens with the promise that all the peoples of the earth will wail on account of him. In that same chapter, John sees a vision of the risen Christ that fells him and us dead to the ground. Eyes like flames of fire and a sword of judgment proceeds from his mouth. In chapter 19, we get a clear picture of that sword. When Christ appears as the rider of a white horse in righteousness, he judges and makes war, it says. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That is our Christ. Church, if we really start to see him for the holy and righteous king that he is, then we will not marvel at the cry of the pagan nations of the earth. For in light of this king, our cry is a desperate echo. Christ, before you, who can stand? Do not make the mistake, brothers and sisters, even you who are the redeemed of God, to think it will be a light thing to stand on that day. 
before the judge of the earth. So we've seen who it is that judges on that day. We've seen that on that day, judgment will be in the hands of a holy God. But let's turn and look at what the sixth seal tells us about those who are to be judged on that day. Christ teaches a number of things here. He teaches us who are to be judged, what is their number and their scope, and then he shows the response of those who are judged. And there is much to be learned there. So who are to be judged? In verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich (coughs) and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. So who are to be judged? Everyone. Now Christ spends much of this list focused on those who have power, who are wealthy, who have authority. And that makes sense. In most times, in most places, even today, it is the rich and powerful They're seen as inherently righteous. They're seen outside of the realm of judgment. And think of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, remember. And the the disciples just bewilderment when Christ says that uh, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was mind-boggling. So Christ here gives an answer to those who might equate power and wealth with righteousness because they will all hide themselves on that day. Now, we in the West have a different problem. See, we are convinced, many of us, that riches equate with evil, while poor, the poor and weak are those who are righteous. And that's why it's so easy for politicians to convince us that we should just take money from the rich, who are evil money hoarders anyway, and give it to the poor, since their poverty is a sign of their innocence. We have it switched. But Christ leaves no room for that thinking either. Everyone, slave and free, rich and poor, strong and weak, will cower before the Lord on that day. But why are they judged? We know from the preceding seal that a reckoning has come on account of the martyr's blood. Just like the blood of Abel, the blood of the martyrs cries out from the ground, but there's more to it than that. Those who dwell on the earth are judged for their idolatry. How do we know that? Well, look at the response of the earth dwellers to the appearance of the Lamb. They're said to hide in the caves and among the rocks. And that language tells us something. Just like the judgment language that opened and we saw throughout the Old Testament, this language of men hiding in caves and rocks is also prophetic language from the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah 2, where the prophet speaks of the coming of the day of the Lord with judgment on Israel for her idolatry. Verse 17 of chapter 2 of Isaiah says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Ever since the fall, man has been an idol worshiper in his heart. He's turned from worshiping the one true God to worship the things that were created idols of his own creation. He forms them of silver and gold. 
And there's other idols as well. We've talked about these. Wealth, power, friends and family even, appetites and lusts. Even in that day when the foolishness of idol worship is laid bare, then men still reveal the inescapable depth of their idol worship. Because where do they turn? To the rocks, to the mountains, to hide in the ground, still to creation, to protect them from the one who created it. That's the depth of our idol worship. And the thing is that those things already have been cast down. It's foolishness, it's folly, but it's in our hearts. We put our trust in anything and everything but God. We believe that our kingdoms will never end. Our wealth will never run out. And the world will keep going on and will never end. That is the folly of the scoffers that we see in Second Peter. Do you remember this? When he says, of those who in the last days will be scoffing, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's all going to be the same. It's never going to stop. It's always been like this. We hear this daily. In the heart of prideful man, this world and the idols it represents are eternal. Church, how many times have we held on to idols in our own hearts? How many times have we trusted in the kingdoms we have built? The blessings we enjoy. Trusting in those rather than the God who created us. Can I speak to the young people today? I'm not talking about just the children, but those who are beyond childhood, who are on the the verge of manhood or womanhood. Most of you today have grown up in homes where parents loved you and cared for you and provided for you. You had homes, you've had food, you've had comforts. You've had good things. And I'm afraid for many of you that you have enjoyed those good things. You've enjoyed them. You've been comfortable. And those are really good things. But you have been so comfortable that you've decided that those are enough to rest on. Those are enough to seek after. Those, those are fine. And those will last. Those things are what's important. You may be talking about things like the future. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to this school or get this job. You may even be talking about I'm going to marry this girl or marry this guy. Have a family, buy a house, whatever those things are. But in in all that planning, I want you to think. I want you to look into your hearts. Is Is it that you are seeking after those things and planning for those things and wanting to do those things in order just to keep going with the way things have been so you can enjoy the comforts that you've always enjoyed that your parents have provided for you. And you have no thoughts of God or his will for you. You are ignoring God and you're building up kingdoms that you don't expect to end and that puts you like the scoffers who said these things will never end. They've always been like that. And and listen, because you're investing in things that are not going to last. You're making the very things that God's given you into idols in your heart. And because you're treating them as if they are going to give you lasting happiness, comfort, satisfaction. And you're ignoring the fact that God created those things. God provided those things. And God has destroyed those things before. 
He destroyed the entire world with the flood, and one day he will destroy those things again, all of them. He has set a day when the heavens and earth will be shaken, and all the idols of this world that you have invested your life in will be thrown to the ground, and you will stand bare before the Lord and his terrible gaze. So will you be hiding in the rocks, hiding in the clefts, in the sight, at the sight of Jesus Christ, or is there any hope that you will stand on that day? Church, that is the question that we all must face. The cry of the earth dwellers as they cower among the rocks, for them it is one of despair. But church, we are not of those who have no hope. And Christ and the revelation of his day, this day of God's reckoning is driving us not to the utter despair of those pictured here. He's driving us back to himself. We are, we are driven to despair. We are to lose hope in kings and kingdoms, the might of men, possessions, riches, heaven and earth, even our very lives. But that is in order that we might Finally rest on the only sure resting place. And remember the song that we sang this morning. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If we have any hope of standing on that day when all kingdoms come crashing down and all ground that once seemed so sure melts before the glory of God, if we have any hope of standing on that day, it is only by standing on the sure foundation that is Jesus Christ. The question that ends our passage today seems rhetorical in the mouths of the condemned, but in the hands of the Lamb, as he opens these seals and teaches his church, the question becomes anything but rhetorical. The Lamb of God brings a sure answer to this question. He turns from this vision of final judgment to show us who will stand. Look down with me past our passage in chapter 7 of Revelation in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And church, look, look at what they are doing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christ here reveals a people, a multitude, in opposition to that multitude that cries in despair at his coming. The earlier group falls. They, they, in their terror, they bury themselves like worms exposed to the day of light, to the light of day. But this people, clothed in white, they stand before him who is seated on the throne and before the Lamb. And how can they stand? In verse 14, halfway through the verse, it says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They stand before the throne of God because when the wrath of the Lamb is revealed against the wicked idolatry of men, then this people no longer fall condemned. Their sins, the idolatry that once marked them like the rest of mankind has been washed away. Just like the old hymn says, 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. If you stand on that day, it will be because of nothing you've done. It will not be because of who you are, great or small. It will only be because of Christ. What Christ has done to you, for you, in you. Is Christ your only hope for that day? If Christ has washed you in his blood, your guilt is removed. Then you will not fall with those who stand condemned. Remember the martyr's cry, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Vengeance is for those who dwell on the earth. But that does not describe you any longer. For you are no longer an earth dweller. If you have a different dwelling place, like Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, with, in Christ Jesus. We are heaven dwellers who have Christ. And we're members of a different kingdom. When Christ appears to judge, he throws down heaven and earth, great and small, all the kingdoms of this world, those in which men have placed their hope. He casts them aside. If we trust in those kingdoms, then we will despair, but our kingdom is not like those. It is Christ's kingdom, and it will never end. So turn with me to Hebrews 12, to that passage that we opened with in our call to worship today. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 25. It begins, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So remember the great earthquake of our text today, the shaking of heaven and earth. Again, the final judgment. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The great earthquake shakes all of creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains and islands, all are shaken and removed. They represent all the kingdoms of this world, every kingdom built by man. And at this shaking, God shows that they will all fall on that day. The citizens of these kingdoms cry out before the wrath of God, before the wrath of Christ, who can stand. But these kingdoms are removed for a purpose, to reveal that kingdom that will never end, that cannot be shaken. Therefore, it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. Church, our Lord has given us a vision, a vision of the day of his wrath. He's revealed much, and in doing so, he has revealed or brought to light much in our own hearts. In the vision today, he showed us God's holiness. He is holy, and it is because of his holiness that he will rightly judge all evildoers on that day. If we hold vengeance in our hearts... It's because we don't really hold him as holy. 
Repent. Repent of the vengeance and anger in your hearts. Realize that all sin is against God alone. Your sins as well. In the vision, he reveals himself as judge. In unity with the Father, he brings judgment on all those who dwell on the earth. Do not forget that Jesus stands, yes, as the meek and humble friend for sinners, but also as the glorious Son of Man. With eyes like fire and a deadly sword, he is a consuming fire. Reverence him. Do you fear him? Do you reverence him? Are you struck with awe before him? In the vision today, Christ shows us the futility of man and his kingdoms. He reveals the idolatry that fills man's heart. In that day, each man's idols will fall and his kingdoms will come crashing down. I asked the young people before, but I ask all of us now, do you spend your days entrusting yourself to a life and a kingdom that will not last? As the writer of the Hebrews said, do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse the call of Christ to repent and abandon your idolatry and cast yourself on him. For those who do, who do abandon all else and cast themselves on Jesus Christ, Christ reminds us that there is a people who will stand on that day. All those who have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb, they are no longer earth dwellers, but those who dwell in heaven. And they have traded all the kingdoms of this world in which they once lived for citizenship in a kingdom that will never be shaken. Church, let us be grateful for receiving that kingdom. Let us pray today.